The scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 13, verses 13 through 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among who you fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Heather. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for Paul and Barnabas and Antioch. Lord, thank you for our brothers that had the courage to go on a missionary journey. Father, this morning as we open your word, Lord, as we seek to learn and grow, we pray that you would open our hearts. Father, we pray that you would transform us by your gospel so that we look more like you, sound more like you, love more like you, for your glory alone, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Paul and Barnabas took the gospel to the people of Antioch, to a people that for the most part, didn't know they needed the gospel. Didn't know they needed the gospel because they couldn't see their sin. We have this idea that if we can't see it, it can't hurt us. It must not be worthy of our attention. Nothing could be further from the truth. I remember being a 12-year-old boy uh, on a lake it was a beautiful sunny day, 
and I was on a raft uh, face down. It had a hand on a dock cleat just hanging onto the dock, and I fell asleep, I suppose. Suddenly I felt something scratching my back, and it woke me up from my slumber, and I, I guess I imagined it was a horsefly or something like that, you know, those big old things that they'll itch and then they'll bite. And so I reached back there to swat it away and discovered that it wasn't a horsefly, but it, it was this tubular thing curled up on my back, sunning itself as if I was a log. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, it was a water moccasin, uh, a highly uh, venomous snake, uh, quite aggressive. Um, of course, I didn't know the identity of the snake at that point. It was on my back. <laughs> what I did know in, the, in, in a flash is there was a snake on my back. Uh, I was in the water. Uh, and, you know, we know that Jesus walked on water. We know Peter walked on water for a bit. If you had seen me that day, you might have thought, there goes another one. <laughs> I moved so quick, I'm convinced that if you had had a camera, you would have seen that snake coiled up in midair. And I just moved out from under it. I then proceeded to uh, back into the cabin and uh, uh, grabbed an instrument that uh, quickly dispatched that snake from its life source. Sometimes we think truly that what we can't see won't hurt us, but it's actually as close as that snake was or even closer, and that would be sin. The people of Antioch uh, that Paul and Barnabas were speaking to that day were made up of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. That's who was in the crowd. You had the Jews that uh, were not aware of their sin in, in any great degree. You had the Gentiles that were hungry for Jesus Christ. This, this passage tells us a story of their first hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God did in their midst. We'll hear more about what God did in Antioch later on in Acts, but at this point, we're just going to focus on this passage. The Jews, the rulers of the Jews, had over the years taken their understanding of, of God, Yahweh, and had morphed it by adding things to it again and again and again, and along the way, subtracting some of the holiness of God. It was God plus. God plus this work, God plus this work, God plus this work. If you keep this ceremony, this sacrifice, you do this right, you take these number of steps only and not, not anymore. Uh, those kind of things were added to it. There were over 1,500 different laws that were on the books just on how to keep the Sabbath. Uh, they had destroyed much of the Ten Commandments by adding so much minutiae to it. In so doing, they had reduced their sin to this itty-bitty uh, understanding of sin, something that could be then conquered by an itty-bitty impotent God that could be appeased by the feeble works of man. Well, we know, as we just sang a few moments ago, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His, of His glory. He is worthy, and not, there's none other that is worthy of our worship and honor and praise except God. But when we, when we believe somehow that we can appease God and appease that sin, uh, take care of that sin through our own feeble efforts, then we have reduced God to this itty-bitty impotent individual that is really no different than a man. But that is what has ha had happened in, in Antioch with the Jewish synagogue. 
In verse 26 and 32, it gives us, it tells us a bit of what Paul and Barnabas did when they got there. In verse 26, it says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. So you've got Jews and you've got God-fearing Gentiles. To us has been sent this message or the message of this salvation. Then in verse 32, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, Old Testament, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, New Testament, as also it is written in the second Psalm. So Paul and Barnabas went, went back to the Old Testament just as Peter had done in Acts chapter 2, just as Stephen had done in Acts chapter 6, and they declared the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. It's called a kerygma, K-E-R-Y-G-M-A, looking at the Old Testament and expounding on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as they did this, you think that that maybe the Jews would be hungry for Jesus and they would have this aha moment. Here it is, the Messiah has finally come. But that is not what had happened. Paul and Barnabas had, had done what they would do in every single city they go to. Um, they would go to the synagogue if there's one present and would, they would visit that place first. Uh, the gospel is given to the Jews first, but then to the Gentiles. And so they did that. Um, the, the scriptures were read. They were invited to speak. They spoke. They were invited back the next Sunday to speak or the next Sabbath, which would have been a Saturday to speak again. So they, they speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 to 25 gives us an idea of how they began. They, they talked about how God, God gave. God gave you this. God gave you this. God gave you this. God gave, God gave, God gave. God gave you Saul, whom you begged for. God gave you a king. And you've got to believe that right now the, the Gentile or the Jewish rulers and all the people are saying, yes, God did this. Yes, and he did this. Yes, he did this. Yes, he did this. And then they, they lower the boom uh, in, in verse, um, verse 23. And of this man, that's David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. And at that point, I'm thinking some of the Jewish rulers are then backing up and saying, wait a minute, these are followers of the way. They're followers of that, that insurrectionist Jesus that we had killed back a few years ago. The, the, we've allowed the wrong people to speak in our synagogue. But at that point, it's too, it's too late. They declare the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. But then in verse 33, they begin to help these individuals connect the dots. When, he, when they say, this has been fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you're my son today, I've begotten you. Or in verse 34, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of Jesus. He also says in another psalm, verse 35, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So they're showing these, these Jewish rulers again and again and again that Jesus is that one. Now along the way, in verse, verses um, 26 to 33, they, they also tell them, listen, here's what you did. This Jesus was among you. And even though he had not sinned, even though there was nothing uh, evil, wrong, corruption found in him, still you went to Pilate and you had him killed, you. So I'm sure by this time the, the Jewish rulers are backing up more and more and more. And they're wondering, what have we done? The Gentiles were having a different, different reaction. Now a lot of the Jews were also, but the Jewish rulers were not. But a lot of the Jews were having a certain reaction. The Gentiles were having that same reaction. We want to hear more. Tell us more and more and more and more of this. In verse 38 and 39, so you've got this, this, this tension growing there in the synagogue. In verse 38 and 39, Paul gives voice to this tension. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that 
Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The hammer's been dropped. The line in the sand has been drawn. They're letting him know, just as Paul lets us know later on in Galatians 2, verse 20 and 21, that the law of Moses cannot save a man. The law is good. The law is very good. Jesus makes it clear that the law is good. But the law isn't designed to reconcile us to the Father. The law is designed to show us the Father's character, to show us what holiness looks like. It's designed to give us a standard for holy living. It's designed to drive us to the Father, to Christ for salvation. It's designed to do those those things, but it's not designed to reconcile us to the Father. It doesn't do that. But that's the way that the, the synagogue rulers had used and misused the law of God. Paul draws a hard line in the sand there, and then to make sure they get it, he gives them this warning in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, ye scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And yet there were scoffers, and the rulers rose up and drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. One of my favorite poets is Robert Frost, and one of my favorite poems from, from Frost is The Road Not Taken. Many of you probably learned that in school way back when. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood. And I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then I took the other one. It's just as fair, and having perhaps a better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I should be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. There's two roads that have diverged here in Antioch. The gospel has been declared. What will they do with it? What road will they take? There would be many that would look at the gospel and they would take the road less traveled, the road not taken yet, and they would follow Jesus Christ. But there would be others that would look at the well-trodden path and they would say, no, this has been the traditions of the elders for decades and centuries and centuries beyond that. And we will stay the course with that, even though it leads to death. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. And that is what many chose. But in the choosing of that, they rejected not only Paul and Barnabas, they rejected Jesus Christ. And they rejected them not just with a word. It wasn't as if they just said, no, we don't believe that. No, we're not going that direction. No, we're not going to trust you in that. They rejected them with violence. The passage tells them that they, that tells them they drove them out of the city. Now, picture a cattle drive with, with, with whips and yells. They were driven from the town. It was the first of many towns that Paul would be driven from over the years, and the first missionary journey, and the second, and the third, and, 
And, and we believe there might have been a fourth, although we don't have a lot of, a lot of a record of that. Paul would be driven from many, many towns. In fact, we know in Corinthians that Paul uh, would, be, would be beaten in some of those towns. He says five times he received the 40 lashes minus one. Because as a Roman citizen, he couldn't receive 40 lashes. That, that could kill a man. Well, in fact, 10 lashes could kill a man. So five times he received 39 lashes. And those 39 lashes weren't with just a regular uh, whip of leather. It would have been with a, a whip that metal and glass were woven into. He was shipwrecked. He was left outside the city to be eaten by dogs. Cold, he was thrown out again and again and again. And yet still, Paul continued to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was the first time that he did so in Antioch. The first sermon of his first missionary journey. And yet he would go on again and again and again, taking the gospel far beyond Jerusalem. How that we would do the same. Why did they oppose Paul and Barnabas so desperately? The passage tells us that in verse 42. Look closely. As they went out, as Paul and Barnabas, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. The people aren't begging the synagogue rulers to tell us more. They're begging Paul and Barnabas to tell them more of Jesus. Verse 43. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God, not the law, but the grace of God. And in verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So the people are begging, the people are following, they're all showing up to hear the word of the Lord. And then in verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. You know, in in Matthew, in chapter 9, we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into the harvest field. Jesus takes a different tact than the synagogue rulers are taking here. They see the crowds and they're jealous. Why were they jealous? Because the crowds meant power. The crowds meant control. If you can picture these synagogue rulers standing there and the people that had followed them and made them powerful and made them famous in the city are suddenly turning their backs on them and walking away and following those that are bringing to them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These synagogue rulers are losing everything they had worked for. It is their desire that people would be satisfied with the God that they had defined, a small and impotent God that could not do much for them, therefore they must do it for themselves. As the people are following Christ, it takes away the power from the synagogue rulers. As the people are following Christ, their dependence is on someone else and not on these rulers. As the people are following Christ, it takes away control and and leaves it with this God that the synagogue rulers have rejected. It does the same thing, though, in the mind and, and life of those that are following Jesus. When you or I follow Jesus, when we follow him by grace, then, it, then our power is gone. I, we, we, we've let it go as if it was ever there to begin with. That power that we thought we had to somehow appease God, to earn God's favor. I remember the first time it clicked in my mind that I couldn't earn God's favor. Something I have to remind myself of again and again and again, even today. 
1992, and I'm sitting in, in the office of Bob Flayhart, 5.30 on a Tuesday morning, and he's teaching me Greek. Not the best time to learn Greek. <laughs> but the coffee was good. But we're going through Galatians and the Greek, and, and it suddenly hit me that, that I couldn't earn God's favor, that everything I had of the Father was because of the Father's love and grace for me. It was the Eureka moment. And I looked at Bob, and I said, so you mean I can't earn God's favor? And he looked at me with this weird look on his face. He said, whatever made you think you could? And, and I want to ask you the same thing. Whatever made you think you could earn God's favor? When we follow Jesus Christ, we're letting go of our power, our imaginary power to earn God's favor. We're letting go of our imaginary control of our life. We're dependent on someone else, Jesus Christ, the one that can actually affect the change that we so desire. To follow, to follow Jesus Christ for these new believers required faith, but not a blind faith. Not a blind faith. Faith in someone they couldn't see, yes, but not a blind faith. A faith in what they had been told for centuries through the Word of God in the Old Testament. What they had seen proven out by Jesus Christ. This one that was risen from the dead, not a blind faith at all. Require, it would require transformation. Following Jesus Christ would bring about transformation. The transformation doesn't come first. The transformation comes as a result of faith in Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit works in you. It's an invasive gospel. You think, well, I don't want to be invaded. Well, listen, if you're going to say, Jesus, I'm trusting you, I'm following you, I believe you, my friends, Jesus Christ is going to invade your soul with the Holy Spirit. That's going to happen, and it's going to be a good invasion. He's going to invade everything in you, all of your relationships. He's going to invade the way you, you spend, the way you laugh, the way you love, the way you spend your time. He's going to invade the way you live, the way you think, the way, the way you thrive, the way you give, the way you go. He's going to invade every part of you, and that's a good thing. You think, I don't want to go down that road. That sounds painful. It's the best pain you will ever experience. Letting go of things that are not good for you. Letting go of things that pull you away from Jesus Christ. We are designed to have fellowship with God. And the stuff of earth, our own idolatries and sin get in the way of that. When we follow Jesus Christ, the word of sanctification, uh, it's just that big theological word that means becoming more and more like Christ we follow him, then our fellowship becomes all the sweeter. Well, as that's happening, then the synagogue rulers are losing more and more and more of their control. Before Paul, Paul and Barnabas leave, God has accomplished so very much. Many rejected the gospel, but many others followed. Some rejected, some rejoiced. Let's look at what it means to rejoice. In verse 42, it says, as, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath. They begged to hear more and more and more of it. They were hungry, hungry for the gospel. What are you hungry for? And I'm not talking about the roast that you've got in the crock pot. What, what are you hungry for in your soul? Those that are listening to the good news of Jesus Christ, they had had religiosity. They had had legalism. 
they had had that. They're not hungry for that. They're not hungry for perfection. They're hungry for Jesus Christ. They're hungry for the good news of the gospel. So they're begging to hear more and more and more of that. Oh, church, what has happened to our hunger? Have we lost our hunger because we've, well, we've replaced God's view of sin with our own morphed view of sin? Sin is some little bitty thing that can be appeased by a little bitty God and our little bitty actions. Have we reduced God? And we no longer see him as a holy God that he is, but as some figment of our own imagination. What has happened to our hunger? The next Sabbath, almost the whole city shows up to hear more of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're begging for more and they're rejoicing in what they're hearing from God. As many as were appointed believed that as many as God called and transformed believed the gospel of Jesus. There was great excitement. They believed that they had a need for a Savior. And they believed that Jesus was the Savior. The passage tells us that the word of God spread throughout the whole region, went on and on and on and on. These individuals, these families, this city welcomed the invasive love of Jesus Christ. What are some of the implications of that for us? I want to give us four uh, implications quickly. First, listen, friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then this gospel is laid out for you just as it was laid out for the people of Antioch. And you have a choice. You have those two roads diverging in a wood to reject or rejoice, reject or rejoice. You might say, well, you know, I've rejected the gospel so many times. I'm here this morning, but I don't believe. Why would God offer it to me again? We have no idea how many times Paul heard the gospel and rejected it, do we? You have no idea how many times I heard the gospel and rejected it. I don't know either because my ears were closed. I don't remember, but I know I heard it. I heard it from coaches. I heard it at FCA. You know, I heard it, but it never clicked with me. I remember an elder, his name was Brooks, he was 84 years old, 84 years old, he was an elder, elder emeritus. He had been an elder for decades and decades, and yet he came to me one morning and he said, Harrison, you're the first pastor I've ever met that admitted he was a sinner. Now listen, I know the preachers that were in that church before I was, and they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully. I know that Brooks had heard the gospel but here he was at 84 years old, and he believed, and he became a new man. When an 84-year-old elder emeritus becomes a believer, look out. There's great transformation. It was a beautiful thing to see. Listen, friends, I would, I would say to you that whether you've rejected a thousand times, whether you've been playing a game as a religious Christian, but you haven't believed, I, w- I would ask you again, this is a great time to believe. Will you trust Jesus with that? As if you just heard the gospel for the first time. Reject or rejoice. I encourage you to take the road less traveled. Second implication, understand that to receive and rejoice in Jesus Christ means that you're welcoming Jesus and his invasive love. You welcome Jesus into your life, and he will lavish his grace upon you, Ephesians 1, but he will also lavish it in you. The Holy Spirit will take up residence, and he will do a work in you. He will invade you. Every part of you, your relationships, your community, uh, every part of your life. You can't stay on the old road. 
and pretend to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Third, tell the good news and be glad. Paul and Barnabas told the good news. In verse 52, it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, and they were glad. They weren't glad because everyone in the city believed, because everyone in the city didn't believe. Many in the city rejected, even to the point of driving them out. So why were they glad? They were glad because they had followed Jesus Christ and they'd seen Christ work as Christ desired to work in that city. My friends, you're not responsible for the results, but you are responsible if you're a believer in Jesus Christ to follow him and declare the good news of Jesus with that gentle, invasive love of Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus. Fourth and finally, I encourage you to hunger and thirst for Jesus. The individuals in Antioch were hungry, so they were begging for more of the gospel. What are you hungry for? Hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34. Or Psalm 42, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord my God. Our souls pant for the Lord our God. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you help us to pant, to thirst, to hunger for you and you above all others. Lord, that you would so move in us that we are not satisfied with anything less than you. That we would hunger and thirst not for, not for the stuff that you bring, not for religiosity, not for legalism, but that we would, we would hunger and thirst for you. Our Lord, our God, our rock, and our Redeemer. Oh, Father, transform us so that you and you alone are what satisfies us to the uttermost. Father, I pray that as you declared the gospel and saw this huge transformation in, in Antioch, that we would see the same thing in Annapolis. Father, that you would bring about transformation, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of individuals, families, and entire communities in Annapolis and in Anne Arundel County and in, in Maryland, Father, our nation and our world. Father, I pray that you would so use us as a church, Lord, so transform us and use us that we, like Paul and Barnabas, would be eager and glad to declare the gospel of Jesus. Father, we ask this all in the matchless name of our Redeemer, the good news, Jesus Christ. Amen.